Our Father in heaven, we praise you and acknowledge you as you are the supreme creator being. You are the source of all things and the authority over all. You're the source of our life, the source of our new life. Lord, it's only through you that we can know what's true, how to live in this creation that you've so graciously made and provided for us. So, Lord, uh, we desire this morning that as we look at your word, that you would strengthen us to understand what it is you desire us to hear and strengthen us to respond the way you want us to respond. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Bible is a book full of lies. My Bible is 1,012 pages long, and the first lie is on page 2. And it continues through to the end. Well, of course, I'm just trying to rattle your cage, but you know what I mean, that the Bible is full of true stories that include people telling lies. And it's not just a side issue, it is at the very heart of what the Bible is about. Because a true God created a wonderful creation for his creation to live in and enjoy. And immediately in the very first conversation that occurs between two of his creatures, nearly everything they say and think is a lie. And it all falls apart. And the rest of the Bible is what God is doing about that. And it includes the sending of his son to be light in a dark world. That is to be the truth about God in a world full of lies. And that it is by the truth from God that he will sanctify a people for himself for an eternity. Truth in lying is not a side issue. It is at the core of what the scriptures are about because God is a creator of truth. He is truth and his creation is rebelled against him in lies. And so uh, the Lord gives us a lot of teaching about that because it's critical for us to understand that. And we're going to look at two particular passages, and it's like nearly everything God teaches. It is full of both examples where we can see what it looks like, and also full of explanation to explain to us what's going on. And so what we're going to do in looking at uh, Genesis 3 is first we're going to look at an example Uh, It's the very first one, and it's the paradigm for really every sin and lie that occurs afterwards. Because remember, as we look at this, it's not just a matter of telling a lie as a sin. It's the fact that every sin is the outgrowth of people believing lies. The two go hand in hand. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to go through. We've already read Genesis 3. I'm not going to reread it. But I'm just going to point out some things that are in your outline about what's involved in telling lies and what's involved in believing lies. Now, what we're mainly looking at this morning is not so much the content of the particular lies that Satan is telling here. Um, There's kind of a footnote on the back side of your handout that lists kind of the lies that Satan is telling. What we're looking at is lying itself. 
because people tell all kinds of lies that depend on the situation. But what's common to all of them is why people lie and how they lie. And that's what we're looking at is the process of lying. Why do people lie and how do they lie? And so as we look in uh, Genesis 3, all of this is in here. First, telling lies. I'm going to mark three things and believing lies four things. Now, remember, this is all one big process. This is not a list of separate things. These are all aspects of the same process. They all overlap. They build on each other. They run together. This is not seven separate things. They all work together. So telling lies, the first thing about telling lies, when people tell lies, they are scheming. It says the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. What it's pointing out is Satan has plans to accomplish something. That Hebrew word's not necessarily negative. In the context, obviously, Satan is up to something. We know that Satan, um, um, uh, that Satan prowls around looking for whom he can devour, and we need to be aware of Satan's schemes. Now, in this passage, we're not told what Satan's goals are, what he's trying to accomplish. There are other passages where we are told. Here, all we're told is he's trying to accomplish something. Anytime. You or I are telling a lie. It's because we're after something. And we know that, don't we? You know, when Abraham, um, when Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister and when Peter lied about not knowing Jesus, what were they doing? Well, they were scared and they were trying to protect their skin. When King Saul uh, lied about whether or not he killed all the animals that they captured, what was he doing? He was trying to escape He was trying to escape culpability for his sin. When David's son Amnon lied to his half-sister, it was to get her alone with him so he could rape her. And when we see the Pharisees and Sadducees lying about uh, false accusations against Jesus and later against the apostles, what are they doing? Well, they're trying to neutralize who they perceive as competition with their political power. So we know that when people tell a lie, they're up to something. Um, second, another thing in, in telling lies that we see here is that the lies are baseless. Question here. Satan's lying to Eve. What evidence does he give that what he's saying is true? There's none. What evidence does he give that what God said is false? There's that, he doesn't give any. Why? Because there's not any. He can't give evidence for something that's not true. What he does do is he tries to stir up Eve's desire for what she thinks she can get if she pursues the lie. But there is no evidence uh, for what he's claiming. And then another thing that ties into this is lying is always implicitly or explicitly, it's slanderous. Okay? If I'm saying one thing and Carol is saying the opposite, then basically I'm saying Carol's wrong and independent on the situation I'm implying, he's lying to you. Believe me. (laughs) And that's what Satan is doing here. He's saying, you need to believe me because what I'm telling you is true and what God told you is bull. 
And not only does he, and he accuses God of lying, but not only does he do that, but he impugns God's motives. Because he's holding out on you, because he knows if you do this, you're going to get something good, and he doesn't want you to have it. Very common, and we all experience it in our lives, that when someone is trying to promote their lie, what do you do with the person who tries to say, oh, wait, that's a lie, what do you do? You discredit them, don't you? I mean, that's what you do in the courtroom. You discredit the witness. Don't trust him. That's what Satan does. Well, what about believing lies? That's Satan telling lies. What about Eve believing them? There's some things here that are really important, and each one of these get taught a lot all through the Scripture. Number one, read carefully. Eve chooses to believe the lie. Nobody's pointing a gun at her head. Nobody's throwing her down to the ground and making her do something. She chooses to believe the lie. And that includes choosing to reject what is true. When you look at what Eve, what happens here, Eve knows she is aware of what the truth is. But she chooses to reject that and ignore it. And what she chooses to believe is something else. We're going to see this uh, that was read in Romans 1. Where What does it begin? Why is God's wrath revealed from heaven? It's because people in their godlessness do what? They suppress the truth. And God says... You know, what can be known about me, the fact that I'm up here is evident. You're just choosing to ignore that. And so what does God say? Okay, you're off the hook. No. Does God let Eve off the hook here because she chooses to not think about it? No. Um, we're going to read an example later from the New Testament. We're going to see this, what this looks like when people do this in day-to-day life. Uh, from uh, from the New Testament. There's an interesting thing. This idea is all through Scripture where cha- God challenges His people when they're rebelling against Him and sinning and they're trying to act like, oh, I didn't know. God's going to say, no, that's not true. There's an interesting thing in Second Peter 3 when Peter is writing about People denying the truth that Jesus is actually going to come back. And he says, when they do that, they are, um, they are intentionally ignoring the fact that God created the world through the spoken word and then he flooded it. Now, unfortunately, Nasby translates that in kind of a, um, a neutral way and it says, I think it says, um, it escapes their notice. But the Greek is actually much more specific that it's very intentional. And that's why most English translations will th- say things like intentionally ignore or deliberately, um, deliberately ignore that fact. Throughout Scripture, trying to say, I didn't know... God says, well, actually, most of the time, you are going out of your way to avoid hearing the evidence for the truth if it doesn't fit what you want to hear. 
Another thing about Eve believing the lies that it's true for all of us when we believe lies. Believing lies is self-centered. I put two things here. And look what Eve does. She, she's believing the lie. Why? Because she perceives that if she does, she's going to get something out of it that she thinks is beneficial. In other words, we believe what we, whatever we want, we believe what we want to believe if we think that will get us what we want. I've shared this before many, many years ago. This was before Pastor Terry was ever here. There was a young couple that attended our church for a short time, and they came to me to ask me about marrying them. And he'd been married and divorced three times. She'd been married and divorced twice, and they were living together, and they weren't married. A very young couple. And I always remember sitting in the office, and this guy looking me right in the eye and saying, I know the Bible says we shouldn't live together if we're not married. But I know it's all right because it makes me feel so good. Now, I am not at all surprised that he's thinking that because you and I do, all of us do that all the time to justify our sin. The only thing that amazed me is that he would say it that boldly and not hear himself say it. Usually we're much more discreet and we even lie to ourselves about that. But the whole thing is this magical thinking that the fact that I want that to be true is evidence that it is true. Well, it's not. I might like for the moon to be made of cheese, but the fact that I want it to be true has no effect on what it's actually made out of. Another thing is believing lies is rebellious. Anytime we're believing lies, well, what is God? God is truth. And what Eve is doing is she is choosing that I'm going to operate my life in a different set of rules because I really don't like the way God runs his show. So I'm going to do it another way. Last thing about Eve, what does she do besides sinning herself, believing these lies and sinning herself? What else does she do? Yeah. Misery loves company, so does sin. I'm going to sin and I'm taking you with me. Let's load up. I put in there in brackets, plus or minus intimidation in trying to get other people to go along. If I'm living a lie, I want other people to join in with with me, right? Because that somehow validates it. Within this passage itself, she doesn't use fear and intimidation to try to get people to go along with her. But throughout all of Scripture, that's going to become a real big deal. And it's going to, we're going to see that in a passage we read a little bit later. So I put that in brackets because it's not in this particular passage. I want to go back for a minute about Eve. Because Eve is telling lies too. Now we see Satan telling a lie. But if we look at these verses... Eve is also telling lies. Now, trick question. Who is she telling lies to? But first, before you answer, we've got to back up and ask a more basic question. Who is Eve talking to in verse 6? She's talking to herself. 
When we're believing lies, what we do is we start taking those lies and rehearsing them in our mind, and we start telling ourselves lies. For all of you that have spent a lot of time in Ephesians 4 and 5 and have done the ACBC counseling um, training, you know that's a big thing. That What we do is we talk to ourselves all day long. And what are we telling ourselves? What is, what is Eve evaluating when she's looking at that fruit with whether it's good, good or not? Is she telling herself what she knows God said? We know she knows what God said. Is that what she's telling herself? What is she telling herself? That's good stuff. I'm going to get some good stuff out of it. She's lying to herself. And again, it is slanderous. Because what she is doing is she is saying, Satan, I believe you. God, Now, you may be thinking I'm reading a lot into this, but there's a lot of passages in the Scripture where people are doing this, and God will explicitly say that. What does John tell us? If we claim that we don't have any sin, what are we doing? We're making God out to be a liar. Not only are we lying, but we're saying, I don't believe God. He's a liar. There are a lot of Scriptures in that where the Lord shows us that that when we decide, oh, I'm not going to think about that, I'm not going to think about that, I'm just going to believe this, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe this, we're calling God a liar. We may not say that out loud even to ourselves, but that's what we're doing. We read the passage in Romans, and we find that actually all of those same things are there, and I'm not going to reread it, but just skimming through, you can look at this same chart, about what are they doing, um, that they're suppressing the truth. That is, there's a lot known. Everybody knows enough to know that there is a supreme being that they're answerable to. But what do they do? They suppress it. We're seeing all of these same things. Um, and on what basis? Well, there is no basis. There is no basis. And we get into this cycle of simply what they want and their desires... And so they're not going to think about what's true. And a couple of things that this passage in Romans is going to add is their thinking becomes more and more foolish. Once they reject the truth of what God said and start trying to convince themselves of things that are not true, their thinking becomes more and more faulty. And there's a very terrifying thing. I'd been a Christian for a few years before. I mean, I'd read this passage for some reason One time, God just hit me between the eyes with this. Three times, God says that if people do this to me, if people decide they're going to suppress the truth, say they're going to ignore me, and they're going to pursue their own lies, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to let them have what they want. And to realize that's a judgment for God. Because when we pursue our lies, they are so destructive. That that in itself is judgment. Throughout the biblical history and in our own lives, usually when people are disobeying God and they get what they want, they think they won. 
God says otherwise. Recruits. What was the last verse that we read in Romans? They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Join the bus. Flipping over to the next page, I want to take a moment to talk about lying and idolatry because sometimes we'll think this is a different subject, but actually it's all exactly the same thing. It's just using different terms. I'm going to read just a little bit out of Isaiah 44. And we're going to see all the same things. We tend to think that if somebody sets up a wooden or gold statue or something, that, oh, that's idolatry. And all of this other stuff is somehow something else. No, it's all the same thing. It's all exactly the same thing. So in Isaiah 44, the Lord is having Isaiah point out what idiocy it is to take a lump of metal or a piece or a piece of wood and cut up half of it and burn it to cook, cook your supper and then take the other half of it and make a carving and bow down to it like it's got some kind of power. And. God says, do you allow your kids and grandkids to use the word stupid? <laughs> it's stupid. And he and so he says half of it, he burns in the fire. And over this half, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and he's satisfied. He also warms himself, says, ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of this piece of wood, he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worship. He also prays to it. And says, deliver me, for you are my God. So I want to point out in idolatry, and I I have a little uh, graphic there in your handout. It says, heart, instrument, immediate goal, desired outcome. Again, all of this is one big process. And the Lord shows us different aspects of it. But this is all one thing that flows together. That from the heart, we see in Ezekiel 14, is we get in our... We get in our heart, in our mind, there's something that we want that we think, man, I'd be better off with that. And then there may be some instrument through which we think we can acquire that. Um, It might be the fruit from a tree or it might be a carving that I made. This thing is going to be the power by which I can acquire that thing that I want. But then why do I want that thing? There's some kind of outcome that I'm after. Okay, this is not rocket surgery, so don't make this more complicated than it really is. All through Scripture, there's examples and examples and examples where Eve is deciding in her heart that she really thinks that eating this fruit is going to give her some. It's almost like an idol. This instrument of this fruit is something that if I take that, it's going to allow me to get this immediate goal, the thing that I want. And what I want is I want to be the one that decides which right or wrong. That's actually what's issue in Genesis 3. It's not like she's wanting information. The whole issue there is who gets to decide what's right or wrong. And so what she's wanting is that knowledge, the ability to decide what's right or wrong, and what's the, desi- the ultimate desired outcome that she's really after. Autonomy. God, God can go take a flying leap. 
I'll decide what's right or wrong. I'll decide whether it's good or not to eat that. I'll do it. And eating that fruit's going to get me there. You know, often we may say, well, that person, money is their idol. Okay, why? What is it that they think money is going to get them? Is it money is something is it's going to be a badge they can wear and what it's going to give them is it will impress other people? Is that actually the immediate goal they're after and the result is, man, it makes me feel good to have everybody look up to me. These are the kind of things that in counseling, you know, in your own life, you examine your own heart to be able to tease this out. And when you're counseling someone else, you want to help them with that. Now, here's the question. Why is it so hard to see this? Why is it so hard to see this? Isaiah continues to talk, and he's talking about how dumb this is. And he says, they don't know, and they don't understand. For God is smeared over their eyes, so they can't see, in their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. Don't get thrown off. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. When people begin to reject God, he turns them over and their foolish minds become darkened. He's just saying exactly the same thing. No one, these people doing this, no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say they haven't got the sense to come out of the rain. They haven't got the sense to say, I burned half out in the fire and also have have baked bread over its coals, I roast meat and eat it, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination, I fall down before a block of wood. So the man feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself. And he can't say, well, this is a lie, isn't it? Because what we do is we end up Deceiving ourselves. This goes back to what we saw in Genesis. Where what we want becomes the the desire itself. We take as evidence that it's true. And so what the scripture continually teaches us. And uh, I have Ephesians 4 there. If you're familiar with Ephesians 4. That's what it talks about. Is we're being corrupted by selfish. Excuse me. That we're being corrupted by deceitful desires. And what it is, is desire itself, the scripture teaches in these passages, desire itself so clouds our thinking and judgment that it gets to where we're not any good at figuring out what's true and what's not. And in fact, in these scriptures, over and over in all these examples, the more I move away from God, the more I move away from God's truth and lean into the lie, the harder it becomes for me to recognize that that's what I'm doing. I'm self-deceived. And that's why when someone else does that, if, if I'm doing that in my, some area of my life, in my family relationships or at work, Jerry might be able to see that. And when he tries to sh- tell me, it's like, oh, I just can't see it. And conversely, if Jerry's got something like that in his life, I'm thinking, how can he not see that? Well, the scripture explains that. We deceive ourselves. Over and over we see that. 
So some examples in the Old Testament briefly of this kind of thing going on, and you can either call it idolatry or just another form of what Eve did in the garden. Uh, For example, uh, Abraham and Sarah. There's something that they're particularly wanting, but they're impatient, waiting for God to provide it. And so they decide, well, we'll just take things into our own hands and we'll make something happen. And they did. They had Ishmael. And you can watch the news. We're still living with the repercussions of that. The people during the Exodus... The community of people that God had called together in order to give them the truth that they could be his people. And they got tired of waiting on him. God's not doing his job. We've got a better plan. And so they convinced themselves about making a golden calf and it'd be better to go back to Egypt and the whole mess. Later on, when Israel is in the promised land, we see the same thing. We see Israel... Deciding God is not doing his job. He is not providing us with the blessings that we think he should be and that he promised to give us. So by golly, we're going to take things into our own hands. We're going to get a king like the nations have. And we're going to get him to fight our battles for us. What does God do? He let them have what they wanted. But he said, it's going to cost you. It's going to co- I'm going to let you have what you want. You know, it's kind of a scary thought. If you decide to cheat it and steal at work, and if you decide to, com- to commit adultery, God is probably going to let you do it. He may not stop you. But there's going to be a cost. Now, down the road, God is still gracious. There's things that he can do to take care of that. But remember, the very first lie. What's the very first lie? Page 2 of the Bible. You won't die. That's the lie, isn't it? We can thumb our nose at God and do what we want to. Nothing will happen. We'll get, we'll get away with it. Some of you law enforcement people, you've had to deal with people out on the street that have that thinking. This continues on through the nation of Israel where um, constantly, and it's part of what led to the captivity, is the people constantly getting tired of waiting on God to provide them with the safety and security and prosperity that they think they ought to have and that they deserve. And so they take things into their own hands, all the while convincing themselves this is the right thing to do. And they make all kinds of alliances with unholy nations, and it costs them. And it cost them. When we come to the New Testament, and I'm going to read a little passage in chapter 9. This is one of the things, I don't even know how many times I read this when I was in Anir, uh, when I was in Finney. Uh, it was one of the stories that they really liked to hear. But the reason I'm reading it is because uh, we see the same things happening here that happened in the Old Testament. What we have is we have people who are part of the community that God has called together in order to reveal himself to the world. However, they really don't like God's program. But, of course, they can't say that. They just act like it. And so when Jesus comes and is actually going to promote what God's plan really is, 
It doesn't fit what they're expecting or what they want, and it threatens their own position and political power. So we're going to read what happens here when Jesus heals this man who was born blind. And all the things that we've talked about, like being absolutely determined to refuse to listen to evidence for what's true, and the false accusations and slander against the person who's telling the truth, uh, all of it is just just in broad daylight here. So Jesus has healed a man who was born blind. Um, I have... Let me see what I've turned here. Okay, here we go. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 9. It says, they brought, the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, which, of course, they didn't like that. So the, then the Pharisees were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, Well, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man isn't from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, Well, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they said to the blind man, Well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. The Jews, then, they didn't believe it of him, that he'd been blind and received sight, until they called the parents of the one who had received his sight, and they questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Well, his parents answered them and said, Well, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Well, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. This is the intimidation part. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who'd been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. (laughs) He answered him, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. (laughs) One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Well, he answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God's spoken to Moses. For this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said to him, well, here's an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do nothing. 
And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you're teaching us. And so they put him out of the synagogue. You can take all the things that we looked at in the front of this sheet. They're all right there. You can take every one of these conversations all through Scripture and you watch these things happen. It's really interesting as you read through the trials of Jesus and you read through the trials of Paul, you see this same thing happen over and over again. And what's happening is you see the very community that God has assembled to be his representatives. They are the ones who don't like the way God is actually running his program and they take things into their own hand and through lies and deceit and intimidation, they try to make things happen their way and by the way, they get to maintain their political power and position. And... This is not just a side issue. If you stop and think about it, when you read through the Gospels and Acts, the Lord devotes pages and pages and pages of descriptions of this and explanations so that we can be aware of that. Why? Because we as believers in the church are just as prone to do that today as Abraham was 3,500 years ago, as the people in the Exodus were, let me do my math, (laughs) Uh, 3,000 years ago. Sorry, Abraham 2,000, 4,000. I'll stop trying to do the math. (laughs) Through the patriarchs, in the Exodus, during the period of the judges, during the period of the kings, during the time Jesus walked on the earth, during the time that Jesus had the apostles establishing the church, and all through the epistles, it's made clear that the very people God has called to be his representatives repeatedly, over and over and over and over, they go back to doing the same thing he did. But God is going to save and make build his kingdom anyway in spite of them and because he is a faithful and righteous God. And when we come to the New Testament writers writing to you and me in the church, whether it's Paul or Peter or Jude or the writer of Hebrews, they keep referring back to these very events to warn us and say, Don't you do the very same thing because even as Christians with the Holy Spirit, we are still prone to go back and do the same thing. And we've got to always be on alert to help each other. Now comes the hard part. It's easy for me to see Weston do this and it's easy for Weston to see me do this I'm picking people that I don't know any. <laughs> I'm not thinking about anything about Weston. I'm just, you and I as brothers and sisters. It's easy to see other people do that, but when we do it ourselves, we're so self-deceived we can't see it. About three years ago, um, Pastor Keith did a series about some of the current events and things in our society 
about uh, race relations and civil disobedience and things like that. And that was very helpful. And one of the things that he did, this was back in 2020. I looked up the date and then I forgot it. Um, and one of the things that he did is some of the movements in our society that have some excesses that we need to be aware about, uh, he kind of showed what some of the errors and fundamental flaws in their thinking were as how it's produced. And he talked specifically, um, he talked specifically about uh, some lessons on critical race theory and some lessons about um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And he was very careful to point out that, that not everybody that subscribes to part of that necessarily buys into all of it, and we certainly want justice in society. But he went ahead and kind of helped us see some of the fundamental philosophy underlying some of that um, that's not biblical. And certainly some of the behavior by people trying to carry it out is not. But as I was sitting in there three years ago, and since then I've only become more convinced of it, that that whole list, and I had notes listed all the things he went through, as I sat there I thought, you know what? You can put Christian nationalism and the MAGA movement in the same column beside it, and you can go down that exact same list. The same, there are faulty, unbiblical premises under there, and the behavior of some of the leaders is very unbiblical. And maybe sometime someone will do a lesson on that, but that's not the part I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm going to take what's in here, this, what we've looked at this morning, and that is we live in a time when there are at least part of the leadership in the Christian nationalist movement and the MAGA movement, not everyone, but there's a considerable part of the leadership that lying, telling lies, and believing lies is such an integral part of how they operate that it has practically become one of the defining characteristics of the movement. And we expect that in politicians, okay? I expect that in politicians anywhere in the world. But here's what my neighbors and your neighbors and the people in America, and in fact, when I go overseas and talk to my Christian friends overseas, this is what they cannot fathom, is why has a large percentage of the evangelical church in America bought into lying and decided that lying is okay if you can get people in government and get a vote, by golly, we'll lie. And then we're going to add more lies to try to cover it up and claim that we're not. And anyone that tries to point out our lies to us, well, he's the liar. And a mountain of real evidence that they have that I'm lying, I'm not going to hear That's fake news. And all the accusations I'm going to make against them, I'm going to make all kinds of accusations. Where's my evidence? There's not any. I don't have any. I, I can't find it. It's here somewhere. I'm going to end reading a couple of verses from Zechariah 8, not 7. 
throughout biblical history, God's people have been doing this over and over and over. This is not peculiar to the evangelical church in America. And I'm not talking about every evangelical in America. But it's a big enough trend that this is what unbelievers are asking. We don't get it. And this, and the lying is just like what we read, is like, just like what we read about these guys that were rejecting the truth about Jesus healing the blind man. This is not some subtle stuff. It is so obvious to the world. I'm in Australia talking to my friends. They say, what on earth is going on over there? It is so obvious. Do they not ever listen to their leaders? What they, do they not listen to what's coming out of their mouth? So what do we do? I thank the Lord he gave me my wife. Because hardly a day goes by that my, Lord, that my wife doesn't say, David, calm down. God wins. All through history when God's people does do that, he says there's going to be consequences, but I'm still going to fulfill my promise because of who I am. And it doesn't matter how bad we as the evangelical church in America, it doesn't matter how bad we mess up. Jesus Christ is going to build his kingdom and he wins. And so Zechariah is giving the same message to Israel and so Uh, The same thing is going, the same kind of thing is happening at that time in the post-exilic period. And so this is what Zechariah, what God had Zechariah tell the people. He said, do not fear. He didn't say you're not going to have to go through rough times. But he said, you don't fear. Ultimately, I am going to build my kingdom. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth. That is when you're deciding whether you're going to believe something or not. Base it on truth, something that's real. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. That's the courts, in case you don't know. Um, Old Testament culture, judgment for peace in your courts, and let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love false testimony, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of in the world for us to be grieved about. But maybe we need to pause in throwing rocks at the liberals and we need to look in the mirror and clean up our own house. And God is gracious. And he will bring us to where instead of throwing rocks at the liberals, we'll be praying for them and sharing with them the truth rather than using lies to try to get political power to make more and more rules to slap on top of them. Our Father in heaven, 
We are so completely, totally dependent on you. Even before the fall, Adam and Eve needed your instruction and guidance as a loving father in how to live in your creation. Lord, how much more now that we're so self-deceived? Lord, I confess before these people getting up here and getting wound up about other people being self-deceived, but Lord, how many times in my life do I do the same thing? In so many ways in my personal life and work with my neighbors, work at the church, business, uh, politics. Lord, I am so prone to that. And so, Lord, I pray with King David that, Lord, search me and find, show me those hurtful ways and purify me with your truth. We know that it is your truth that will sanctify me, my brothers and sisters in the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.